Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Campbell Murdoch is the co-founder and medical director of Health Results, a preventative healthcare organization focused on metabolic health. He is a general practitioner in the Southwest of England. He has a special interest in metabolic health. Dr. Murdoch is also a quality improvement clinical advisor and trainer for the National Health Service Sustainable Improvement Time for Care program in the UK. He is also a clinical advisor and entrepreneur for the Royal College of General Practitioners. He believes in assessing and addressing the root causes of poor health and empowering people through knowledge and support. His portfolio of roles range from general practice to health and well-being services for organizations and businesses. His wider interests include large-scale change to address the global poor metabolic health and type 2 diabetes epidemic. In addition, Dr. Murdoch delivers prevention, health, and well-being services within schools and prisons, and regularly presents at education events and conferences to share learning and keep shifting the world in a better direction. Dr. Campbell Murdoch, what an honor to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Thank you, Casey. An absolute honor to, to be speaking with you today. Oh, we're honored to have you, man. I need just a little bit of your optimism. I know a lot of your work is working with um, large-scale change of metabolic health. And man, <laughs> I'm a bit pessimistic <laughs> about the direction we're going. I, I, feel, I feel like I can work with you know, one person and help them you know, achieve better metabolic health. But to be able to scale this up, man, what an undertaking you're, you're pursuing. Wow. Yeah, no, it's an interesting time we're at, isn't it? Because we, we know the size of the scale of the problem. And we know the drivers of what's causing this problem. And it's got so bad, really, that it's having a huge impact on many individuals' lives, but it's actually starting to collapse society. And, and for example, this kind of COVID pandemic and the, the issues that people with poor metabolic health have had um, and the higher risk uh, with COVID, just as one example. Uh, Add on to that, my work as a general practitioner, so I qualified as a GP in England in 2007, a job I've always wanted to do and love, um, but you find you're just on this production line, 10, 15-minute appointments, pushing people through, and you know it's busy. But then the trouble is, once your eyes open to actually perhaps 50% of what's coming in the door is either directly caused by poor metabolic health or is being compounded by poor metabolic health, that actually you just have this decision to make. Do you suck it up and keep the production line running fast? Or do you think, actually, let's let's try and address the root causes? So it's, um, yeah, it's not really a choice, is it? It's, it's got to be done because otherwise the other effort kind of ends up a bit futile. You're, you're climbing a mountain that's ever getting bigger. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to say it. I was just thinking in my mind, it's like, it feels like we were all like rowing around on a boat on a lake and then we needed to row upstream on the river and then we lost the paddle and then, you know, the, the boat is about to capsize and hits a rock. Like, this is a hard battle to fight. It is, but um, probably, again, much, much of like much of what you do, it's something I've always been interested in is maximum output per unit energy input. And actually, if you're seeing somebody, if I'm seeing a patient and you're patching them up and you're giving them a medication to fix them for a month, it might have got them out the door, but that unit of energy has had hardly any actual true benefit. So it's a case of where can you use that same unit of energy and have a bigger impact. And I think, I think what we are now seeing is the system is ready for it. So 
Um, certainly, uh, my awareness in this field over the last 10 years has been um, we're, we're, we're trying to smash paradigms and that creates kind of troop mentality and battles and huge amount of energy goes into to battling. Uh, but you know you're helping one-to-one these kind of there's nothing better than dealing with people on a one-to-one level because you see the reality um that 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 no academic paper will ever show you. Yeah. Totally. Um and that just keeps you going, doesn't it? You know you're on the right track, you know this has got to be done. Um and then yeah, over the last 10 years for me, it's been trying to looking how can we change this system and the various roles I've had um as part of uh, kind of commissioning for 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 health services and linked to the Public Health England, the national body for public health in, in, in England, you kind of start to understand how they work and think, actually, this is in everyone's interests. Like the, in the UK, we have the National Health Service, which is a, there's a kind of a fine budget to provide care for people. And the constant game is how many, we need to make savings this year. We need to make savings. <laughs> right? wow. we, can, we can make savings and improve health. So wow. you think it's a no-brainer. Um, you think it, it should, in theory, be an absolute no-brainer, but 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 it's like go back five years and it was a tough battle because of shifting paradigms. Whereas now there's a sea change happening, I think, and um through the hard work of, of lots of people, but it's I'm feeling uh, yeah, I think I'm I'm feeling really hopeful. And I think the art now is working out not how to battle to get the changes happening, but actually. Just how do you how how do you trailblaze the paths that need trailblaze to create these large scale systems that actually make a difference? Wow, yeah, that's amazing. That's so well said. I'm already feeling a little bit more optimistic. Um, I, I just I so much respect people like you who decided to take kind of a different path. I I don't have. I don't blame any doctor who stays in the system. I mean, it's your livelihood and it's what you committed so long to do and you were taught a certain way. And it's, it's a real challenge. Um, I would love to hear your own personal story. You know, when did you know you wanted to get into the medical industry? What did you want to do? How did those things come about in your personal life? Yeah, it was really interesting. So probably early teens, it was, uh, uh, started looking at medical school just as, as the destination with the, the, uh, the simple phrase, and just as I gave it at my medical school interview, is uh, I like solving problems and I want to help people um, and, and I love, love the science. Um, key thing for me is I'm, I really love people as well. So it's, it's about putting all that together, but with a, with a real person in front of you and that whole, that whole picture. So general practice was, a, um, was kind of an obvious direction. But with also the awareness, knowing in general practice, you can kind of forge your path if you wish to with it. So in the UK, you have the five years of medical school. And then when I went through, you did uh, a year of what's called the pre-registration house officer, which is kind of the, the junior doctor running around doing the tasks. And then you went into three years of GP training where you rotate through accident emergency or ED, obstetrics, gynae, uh, pediatrics, cardiology, a bit of general practice. And then you come out the other end three years later. Um, so what, nine years after starting medical school. So this would, qualified be, GP. this would be like a, would this be like a family doctor type of thing? Like we would call it around here. I think so. Yeah. I think family doctor and GP is probably the same phrase. Um, uh, so basically it's the, you, you, you have it, you work in a clinic, you have a, a list of registered patients. Um, so it's approximately about 2000 patients against your name and you kind of, the way it works here is whatever their needs are, they can book an appointment and you, and you see them. 
Um, but the difference probably with the way the UK system works is it's a uh, it's a what we call capitated budget. So we'll get a certain amount of money to look after those 2,000 patients and you need to do everything they want for that for that budget. So in a way, we want to keep patients away. The kind of the, the ultimate would be healthy patients that don't see you. Ah, interesting. Which, uh, yeah, which, so if you... If you look at the the typical healthcare model, though, it's diagnose and treat, and that's what that's what the medical training is. What's the disease? What's the treatment? Off you go, and that works very well for acute problems, and that's what the medical model was designed for, and certainly that's what hospital medicine works. It works quite well in hospital medicine, but actually, and, and as you all know, metabolic health problems. Once you become aware of the 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 symptoms that people are presenting with, or the conditions such as type two diabetes having this root cause, you, you, you can't not see the futility of trying to kind of stick a cork in the in the pressure release valve that's that's blowing uh, as, as as I can sometimes see type 2 diabetes is blood sugar shooting up because the kind of the pressure of the container is about to blow. So it's trying to find a way out and and using drugs to try and pop a cork in that um is 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 uh, you kind of realize doesn't work. So from a UK general practice system, if you're going to be looking after these patients for the next 20, 30 years, and actually you're starting to see this, you think, actually, unless I unless you do something differently, every one patient, every one appointment this year will be five, with two, two appointments in five years. And we're not getting any more money to deal with that. So mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense to try and go upstream. But the challenge is the system's designed as an acute care, diagnose and treat, throughput, prescribe. Uh, model um, because that's what general practice that's what worked well 50 years ago interesting but but not now okay I'm curious when you very first started in your career was was that in your consciousness at all that all of these issues that you would soon be treating were all metabolic related or mostly metabolic related or was that not on your consciousness at all back then yeah not really necessary so I started medical school in 1998 um, and what was interesting around that time was the it was the advent of preventative medicine where we're kind of thinking right let's get loads of people and drug loads of people for example with statins to benefit one so that that thought of we can do something upstream was coming in unfortunately slightly corrupted by by that we use drugs to do this but that was being implanted uh, something else I mean I grew up my father's a structural engineer so kind of grew up with uh, you look at the root causes of why the house is falling down not just plaster over the crack um so i'm sure that put some influence in but lastly i was really lucky and i still remember the lecture to this day of a lecture on metabolic syndrome and at that time it was transitioning from being called syndrome x to metabolic syndrome and it must have been a great lecture because the uh the information really did stick with me um then at the time but then forgot about it as I moved out of medical school into the hospital system where actually somebody's coming in with a heart attack or a pulmonary embolism or a DVT in the leg it doesn't it's, it's not it's not the it's not the focus and certainly discussing those root causes isn't the treatment for that problem at that moment in time so you kind of for, forgot about that stuff um and even as I started practicing general practice you're, you're focused on the complexities of people and consultation skills and the vast knowledge you need for all the different conditions um so at first it wasn't it wasn't really on that radar it was this case of what what is this person's real needs but 
and then that was more of a holistic way rather than looking at those kind of physiological markers. Um, so for me, as soon as I qualified as a GP, initially did a bit of um, postgrad training in in teaching and uh, organisational change and leadership, which was kind of interesting, but um, set me up in a bit of a direction. But 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 wasn't teaching wasn't something I was going to focus on. But then went and studied postgrad sports and exercise medicine for three years, um, and the real interest in that was was really around how do you get a well human. And I was thinking, right, athletes, athletes do a good job of peak performance. What is it they do? Um, and the wonderful thing with sports and exercise medicine is it's a fairly new discipline. So they're quite keen for you to challenge your received wisdom, challenge what you know, um, like people with meniscal tears in the knee. Like, do they really need surgery for that? Does that actually make any difference, even though that's what's done? Does it go into the literature? Does it make any difference? So that started challenging that thinking, um, and which really helped, really kind of just helped expand my brain again. Um, there were, the, the course, the, the training touches on metabolic health, but not a huge amount, to be honest. It's more training to be a sports doctor for a, for a football team or something rather than metabolic health. However, as um, I'm sure you know, the, the great prof Tim Noakes is um, obviously uh, influential in the uh, sports medicine world um so my awareness of, of him uh was increased while studying that and that was around about the time i think he had his he had his wake up call of uh this whole thing around insulin resistance so kind of a number of things that came together and then the real key thing when you, you kind of to answer your question like what point did my brain flick what is going on here it was around about 2012 and I was doing 12, 13, 14 hour days in, in, in general practice, family, family doctoring. And you get to the end of the day and you've got 100 blood test results to file. And the normally is filing them, high cholesterols, message to the patient, have a statin, et cetera. Um, was, was the kind of firing through these things as quickly as you can so you can get home to bed. And that evening, I was just reflecting on my way to bed. It's like, why does everybody have tri high triglycerides? And they're just not on the radar or something to worry about. And we didn't really know why they were, so we just filed them. And uh, I was off to bed, had my phone in my hand, and I thought, let's just Google it. So I Googled what causes high triglycerides. And within about five minutes, I, um, I, I had this kind of flashback to that metabolic syndrome lecture I had at university. At the same time as having this uh, gut-wrenching, sinking feeling, um, a bit like when you're a kiddie and you break something you shouldn't have done. And you think I'm gonna? I've got to. I've got to face up to this. <laughs> you know the. You know the scene in the movies where it like kind of zooms in and zooms out all at the same time to like the person's face as like the tornado's coming or something. That's that's what I'm picturing. <laughs> yeah. Like holy smokes, what did I just yeah. learn? That's crazy. That's it. <laughs> so yeah, so that 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 night actually, um, and I can still recall it. I went to bed and, and like beforehand, I'd never really read any research papers because uh, family medicine is kind of you've got your guidelines. Let's just, uh, you're so busy. But actually that night I was on, on my phone all night reading one research paper to the next, kind of building on this reawakening. And honestly, by the, have you seen the film Shutter Island? Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes, yeah, it's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I won't spoil anybody's uh, in case they haven't seen it. But honestly, by the morning, I, I was wondering had I, had I uh, <laughs> what reality was I in? Because this seemed too obvious. Wow. Yeah, so that was a wake up. And the trouble is, as, 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 as with you, once you see these things, You've either got to accept 
okay, I acknowledge this, but I'm going to stay on the production line, work myself to death, not really help my patients, and that's it for the next 30, 40 years of my life. Or actually, let's try and do something about this. Um, so you start with the one-to-ones and you see the gains. And then it's a case of like, for, for me, it's like, how much good can you do on this worth, worth whilst we're here per unit energy? So actually, um, that's what motivates me in the morning. So it's it's kind of over the over the next what, eight, nine years, it's been a, also quite, a, quite an interesting journey. Wow. So how was that changeover process for you? I mean, we all know you chose to help your patients, um, but... But was it something you accepted immediately or did it take time for you to wrap your brain around or maybe think about how you were going to implement this into your work? Yeah, I, mean, I guess, yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult to remember the exact detail now. But um, again, as you see, this stuff is quite obvious, isn't it? Once you get your head around it, um, it, 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 it took a moment. It took a, it took a while to do that and then a while to kind of think, how do you actually implement this? I would say it's patients with type 2 diabetes was the first focus because it's it's kind of barn door, isn't it? It's like you've got high glucose. We're trying to get your glucose down. Let's reduce your carbohydrate. Um, so that's where the the real focus started. I would say it took me two years to kind of get comfortable with um, talking about fat with patients and saying, well, maybe we don't need to be so paranoid about eating whole food with fats in them. Um, and then I guess slowly learning my heart. But like as we mentioned before, and as, as you've experienced like people's <laughs> what happens to people and what happens on a one-to-one level with individuals if you ever go home one evening thinking really is this really what we should be doing and that patient walks in the next day and they're completely transformed <laughs> it's um it's there's, there's no better there's no better kind of uh truth actually this is this is effective this is a good use of time um so I guess I spent the next few years really honing it with individual patients. And then um, about sort of 2015, I started to think, right, I've got to get off the treadmill. I was doing four full days a week of clinical stuff, which were, like, were about 13, 14 hour days, wow. plus the administration around that on the... So as you can imagine, I was knackered and thinking, I've seen the light and there's got to be a better way of doing this. And I was also a partner at the time, which again, the way general practice works in the UK, you kind of, you're a, it's uh, many of the practices are owned by the partners. Um, actually, they're a great group of people I was with, but I, uh, I wouldn't have gone into business with them if you were going to set up a business. And I kind of thought, right, well, I need an exit strategy from this. So one of the things I did was got a job with the local commissioners as of what's called their person-centered care lead. So again, probably like in the US, what's, quite vogue now is let's not focus on the disease let's focus on the person um it used to be called patient-centered care but now it's person-centered care so like what matters to the patient and let's do that um which is really interesting it started getting me involved with the commissioning and the managers and the people that control the budgets um but as you can imagine i started i thought i couldn't keep quiet <laughs> so <laughs> it ruffled a few feathers and it just didn't fit with how the budgeting structures worked and things but made a quite a few allies within that system but kind of it was quite a good learning curve as actually how to how to work with larger groups of people and the bureaucracy to actually make change happen and what not to do. 
Um, it's so crazy that but, that's even a thing. Patient-centered care. Like, what, 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 would I get more business if I if I started a restaurant and said, like, you you if you come to my restaurant, you can order anything off of the menu that I offer. <laughs> you can choose whatever you like, unlike every other restaurant where they make you eat whatever they're making that day. That's so ridiculous. It's really crazy, isn't it? I was, I was speaking <laughs> to somebody from re- retail the other day and was kind of reflecting that... Um, like certainly in the UK, the idea is you don't want patients. <laughs> so you're going to do everything you can not for the patient not to come to you. Wow. Um, whereas obviously it's a completely different different situation. With, and I think, yeah, build into that, uh, the historical doctor knows best, that, that probably that that mild anxiety of not wanting to show all your cards because actually it's a complicated subject that you're, you're always going to have um, issues with. But yeah, the patient-centered care, person-centered care thing, it's, it's, it's very much like the... I don't know if you've seen the film Patch Adams, but if you focus on the person, focus on the, what does he say? Focus on the disease. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Focus on the person and guarantee you'll never lose. Mm. Um, which is a really nice model and, it, and it's very much what was needed. But what I got to with that is I ended up finding I was wasting loads of energy. Like absolutely, there was like millions of pound budgets they wanted to save, but they just, what this wasn't on the radar. Dietitians who had some influence because it was dietary stuff we were talking about. We're putting massive blocks up. The diabetes consultants and professors, huge blocks up. And as far as these commissions are concerned, they obviously have to be fairly agnostic as to who they who they trust and 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 believe. So it was kind of a there were barriers all over the place. So for me, I thought, right, screw this. Um, let's go for ground up. Um, why am I asking for permission? So um, with some fantastic colleagues and a really good health coach I work with. We just set up town hall events around the county I worked in, and they were free events. We got a tiny bit of sponsorship from places just to pay for a little bit of food, a bit of low-carb food, and we just put on talks. And most of them have between 1,500 people come along, and we just kind of explained, went through the science, went through what's possible, often got a couple of patients to come and speak. And I thought, let's just raise awareness of people need to know this stuff and let's stop asking commissioners to help. And at the same time, I thought, well, what I don't want to do is cheese off my colleagues because they're all good and they're all working hard. So let's just put the, put the feelers out there and see who's interested in a little bit of education around how you adapt type 2 diabetes medications. For example, if somebody reduces carbohydrate, et cetera. And um, that created a really kind of productive groundswell I mean, you're looking at this large scale change stuff. You're kind of hoping people will pick this stuff up and go and run with it themselves and, other changes happen as a consequence of that. And a patient might go and speak to their own GP and say this happened. And it was Campbell Murdoch, who they would have known, who's told me about this. And um, generally, I've always looked to try and get on with people and not be too, <laughs> not be too weird. So um, um, it, it would have landed okay, I think, um, even, if, even if it was kind of a bit outside their comfort zone. Um, but again, that was all really useful. But again, it, it's kind of slow, these things, aren't they? And and um, so I then got a job with Public Health England, who are kind of like the antichrist for um, low carb diets, and um, I'm sure must have some some influence from from industry coming into them. Mm. But they uh, had some roles where they were kind of trying to raise the awareness of how important physical activity was for health. And uh, again, I'm sure you're aware that that. Uh, doctors we get next to zero training in the benefits of physical activity and health uh, which again is crazy um so this role was going around the country training healthcare professionals in the benefits of physical activity for health um 
which uh, we're supposed to stick to the script. But as you can imagine, it dovetailed perfectly into talking about metabolic health <laughs> diet, wow. um, which um, was a really neat way of getting to probably a couple of thousand healthcare professionals, anaesthetists, nurses and things that um, um, could just erase, kind of start dropping some seeds. And what was really interesting with that, actually, we got a, after a couple of years of doing that, they were starting to get feedback. <laughs> Public health was starting to get feedback of how much people were enjoying the session, especially the talk about diet. Wow. <laughs> and um, so we had the, uh, I think he's currently still in charge of the nutrition stuff, um, chap called Louis Levy um told us right when you're going out you can't talk about diet and if you're going to talk about diet you're going to tell people about the eat well plate which is effectively the equivalent of your food pyramid um at which point i said that well that's ridiculous because we're here to help people and actually what's the point of going and spend exerting all this effort talking about physical activity if we're then um uh, not 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 telling giving the wrong information about diet and it's just ethically wrong um so we had a good old debate and told them which way i was going but basically so that will be better part company because I'm not I'm not going to toe the line with this, um, which again is another good learning experience just of how these systems work. So where that then got me to, and probably again much like what you're doing, is actually let's operate that there's a, there's a there's a demand for all this stuff, there's a need for it, there's an enthusiasm for it, there's this massive kind of uh, pe- people want help, no one wants to be sick, um, and there's a lot of energy around this now. So again, let's stop asking anyone for permission and let's stop trying to involve stakeholders who aren't actually that interested. Let's just go to where every stakeholder benefits and is interested. And if that isn't immediate on our plate, well, let's create that instead. So um, for me, then it was next step was about like, how do we just how do I just go and do this and try and kind of at least pay pay the mortgage at least wow. uh, which is a challenge in the uk because people aren't used to paying for healthcare, right um which again will be different from the states um because healthcare is free um which i think the government is slowly trying to change now but ever so slowly so um but but it, it's it's a slow game so i kind of registered as a to be a private gp as well which became an expensive hobby um because again, this stuff doesn't really fit with that 10 minute appointment. Let's do your surgery and get paid for that. It's, yeah, right. it's much more involved. And if I'm honest, what your, what the way your, your approaches will be is, is, is there's a way to do it. This stuff isn't treated with a doctor consultation. It's just the doctor consultations there to pick up an individual problem now, not, not kind of treat, not, not the whole approach. So, um, with a variety of other things going on, networks going on and publishing some papers around um, uh, kind of the other large scale change, I published a paper on what you do with medication when somebody reduces their carbohydrate or type 2 diabetes, again, just to try and get that upskill other clinicians and try and create that large scale change. I also then started thinking, well, let's, let's start looking who these interested stakeholders are. So this is what got me into the business uh, health field because it's think actually well basically employers want people to be healthy because people are probably more productive and, and less long-term sickness and it's kind of the expectation now that employers do something useful um and actually they've got a bit of a budget for this and then um with the ability of point of care testing now you can do some relatively simple metabolic health tests 
combine that with some training and effectively you've got metabolic health training programs you can deliver. Um, you build the infrastructure around that. And then, as far as I'm concerned, a GP can then pick up the problems that come as a result of people already on the journey, not initiate the journey in the first place, mm. is how I now see it. Wow. Um, so that kind of bring, it brings up to date, really. So founded last year, went from kind of doing this in a small way to co-founding uh, with a fantastic entrepreneur, Steve Bennett. Uh, we co-founded Health Results um, to really just press the, uh, press the booster button on this and, um, and make it happen um with with uh kind of really create the preventative healthcare organization that that that's needed wow uh, and all the facets of that wow so that's yeah that kind of bring, brings us up to date i guess that's amazing i just think it's so cool when you decide to go out on your own nothing is created for you and so you become a savage and just go create it yourself like i'd love that that's a really amazing um, I'm really curious. You mentioned metabolic health tests that can be really simple. What kinds of things are you testing with people? Yeah, I mean, what's what's really interesting is the um, the tests are the, the base tests are really simple. So you look at metabolic syndrome as um, uh, as it has been known for for, for for decades. They use waist circumference, they use triglycerides, they use HDL cholesterol, they use fasting glucose, and they use blood pressure. And there's different. There's a couple of different sets of criteria of where the cutoffs are for those. Uh, but then it's if you score three out of five of those, you've likely got insulin resistance. So um, with uh, point-of-care testing, I mean, glucose is obviously very easy to test and, and, and extremely low cost. Weight circumference, um, <laughs> you need a tape measure. Blood pressure is straightforward. Um, but now we can also, at relatively low cost, test triglycerides and HDL cholesterol there and then. Um, now, as, as you'll know, none of these measures on their own are indicative of poor metabolic health insulin resistance. But the more that are showing to be in the wrong place, the more you can kind of say, actually, there's likely to be an issue here with insulin resistance, hyperinsulin, high insulin levels, poor metabolic health, etc. Um, so what we've done with health results is kind of taken really those metabolic syndrome criteria and also put them together in various ratios to produce a, a single score. Um, so I very quickly learned, actually, although, although this stuff is relatively simple, actually, if it's never been on your radar, get given these five results, you've never heard of triglycerides and you've been told they're a bit high, and therefore that means you've got poor metabolic health. It just doesn't translate to people. Mm. So we, um, after much deliberation and <laughs> review of the literature and things, we created the health results metabolic score, HRM score, which basically gives you a, a metabolic health score on a range of zero to 100, 100 being kind of good, good condition. And what's great about it is it's a, it's a relative score. So your score of 50 wouldn't be able to compare to somebody else of 50. But we know, and, we, we, and this is what's important to me, is we're there to make a difference. So if you score 50, we have a bit of an idea of where your body is. Therefore, we have a bit of an idea about what um, actions will also be useful to improve your health. But also, we're going to give you some information. And if you want it, you can have some coaching support and et cetera, et cetera. But when we come back and test in three months' time, if you've done those things we've said, that number will be better versus typical health and well-being, lifestyle-y stuff is kind of a bit softer. And actually, no one's got any skin in the game with the information about the eat well plate or the food pyramid. It's kind of, here's what you should do, but we're not going to measure anything to say, 
So for me, it was really important that if I'm going to go out there and talk about this, I want skin. The, I, want, I want to be shown up as a charlatan if what I'm saying is nonsense. Mm. Uh, however, if what I'm saying works, plus we find the right ways to make support people actually to make change, we will see this number improving, which is good for the individual as well as tying it into what their personal goal is, um, as well as certainly for organisations, they obviously want some sort of um, objective data where they where they can get it. Mm. Um, so um yeah so that's the basics of it and um, i think what'd be great to add in would be like some really good quality by impedance scales and uh, i think the, the work that you've done over the years um would be would be fantastic to build in at the moment uh around the respiratory quotients thing at the moment i think going into organizations you've got to keep it quite kind of simple straightforward but actually as you layer the service up for individual needs so the kind of goal is is what's the base that meets 80 percent of people's needs mm. and then layer stuff after that wow wow man well on behalf of the united states of america we, we you're very welcome for the food pyramid that we've been shoving down everybody's throats for the last 30 40 years you're you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> hope you got your uh six to eleven servings of whole grains today buddy <laughs> oh, that's incredible isn't it it's, it's incredible amazing. I grew up yeah. on that, man. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, terrible. me too. Fl- flap- flapjacks made from sunflower margarine. <laughs> oh, gross, <laughs> gross. I always slept. I always slept like right in the middle of first period. It was weird. I, I have no idea what happened. Um, yeah. So, yeah. the thing you're you're describing is so interesting. It's actually very similar to a program that I was doing at the gym I was working with, where we were trained to prick people's fingers. We would take just a little bit of blood, and we would be able to give them a lipid panel, a standard lipid panel, and those are some of the numbers that are on there. You mentioned glucose, you mentioned triglycerides, you mentioned HDL cholesterol. Um, a lot of people get lipid panels done and they get really confused about what things are and, and which it was important and which isn't. So I'd love for you to comment on those three markers. Why are they included and what even are they? Like, what is a triglyceride? Yeah, sure. So start with, um, we'll start with glucose because that's... that's um, so I think in your units, milligrams per deciliter and uh, kind of a, you want your, your, your blood glucose below about 100, yeah. I believe yep. is the, is, is about the level. Um, so glucose is obviously sugar. It's a sugar that's in our blood. Uh, we can eat glucose. We can also eat starch, which is long chains of glucose. And when we eat it, we digest it into glucose and it goes into our blood. Um, we have uh, glucose stores in our liver, glycogen. We have glucose stores in our muscle which is glycogen, which is basically like the body's form of starch. So lots of glucose molecules joined together. Now, what's really important as a core concept is the body has to maintain homeostasis. And homeostasis is balance and a sense of harmony within the body. No matter what's getting thrown at it, there are certain things that need to be kept in the right place. And the analogy I sometimes use with patients would be like a, a, a room. You want a room at 20 degrees Celsius um so you have an air conditioning unit it might have a big window where the sun's blasting through you have the sensor that says the temperature is going up let's turn on the air conditioning to bring the temperature down so there's there's those mechanisms all throughout the body including for glucose now for your units it's actually easy to work this out but um the unit we use in the uk for blood glucose is millimoles per liter so it's it's kind of hard to translate what that is into intangible everyday figures but um it probably wasn't until about 2015, actually, I, I kind of worked out, or I think somebody told me actually, what, what's normal blood sugar? What's normal blood glucose in grams? So um, I'm, I'm, you may well already know this. Um, 
that the average adult human has about five litres or eight pints of blood in them. And at this glucose concentration of 100 milligrams per deciliter, um, you can actually quickly work out that's one gram per litre of grams in five litres. So normal blood glucose is five grams or about one teaspoon of glucose in your total blood volume, tiny. which is an absolutely tiny amount, isn't it? So um, the body's going to hold that really tight. Uh, type 2 diabetes can be diagnosed if your fasting glucose is just seven grams, so just half a teaspoon more. So the body's working, it's, it's going to hold on to that really tight. And this comes back to that thing I said earlier about the pressure cooker. So the body's going to be doing everything it can. If you're going to challenge blood glucose all the time, if you're going to eat loads of sugar and, and, and loads of starch and so healthy whole grains, and keep pushing that glucose into your blood, the body's got to keep getting rid of it. The, 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 the blood glu keeping blood glucose normal is such an important thing. The body will make sure the rest of the system takes the hit before blood glucose goes up. And so the way it does that, so when blood glucose goes up, um, obviously, as you, as you know, but go through the, the, the body releases insulin, pancreas releases insulin. Insulin knocks on the doors of cells around the body and says, open your door, let the glucose out of the blood and into cells. Um, it also tells the liver to stop making glucose because our liver can make glucose, um, which is why we never have to eat a single molecule of sugar or starch in our life and can live quite happily um, because our liver can make all the glucose we need and we don't need that much. So it's, it's quite effective. So the insulin will tell the liver to stop making glucose when we have too much in the blood, which makes sense because we don't want any more. Uh, and it will also tell the liver um, to turn any excess sugar into fat to get rid of it because once you've filled up your sugar stores, it's got to go somewhere else that turns into fat. That fat then has to go somewhere, so it gets shuttled off to the fat stores. And then when they start to fill up, um, then the fat kind of starts packing out the liver, starts packing out the muscles. So now you've got a problem. But if you keep these behaviours going where you keep challenging your blood sugar, you're keeping eating sugars, keeping these starches, and your body's really struggling, it's hammering out as much insulin as it can to try and push this glucose out of the blood. It's turning that glucose into fat as fast as it can. It's trying to pack that fat away, but it can't because there's just the body's at war with itself. There's this civil war going on. It's like survival of the fittest. And basically what then happens is fat, the fat's being made by the liver and pumped into the blood fat stores are full and they're really not wanting to take that extra fat and therefore the fat in the blood goes up a bit and that's triglycerides so the the fat that's floating around in the blood is, is is called triglycerides so that's why you see that going up with poor metabolic health um and again it's a extremely common now it's like really as, you, as i said it was my awakening it's like well, why is everyone's triglycerides high um and it's because this is such a common problem so people's triglycerides will often be high even if their glucose is still normal because the glucose is kind of the one that wants to be really kept in check until the last minute before ever when the, when the system explodes that's when glucose goes up and then the last one you mentioned hdl cholesterol so hdl cholesterol is um kind of technically some of the lipoprotein so basically it's a ships various things around the body, including um, fats, and it ships um, things back out from the body into the liver. There's another thing called lipoprotein called uh, LDL cholesterol, which everyone kind of gets known as bad cholesterol, but it's, it's, it's not the right name for it, but that's what people know it for, and that's kind of shipping fat out of the liver. Um, but basically what happens when you've got poor metabolic health, when you've got a, a liver that's kind of cheesed off and overstuffed, when you've got high insulin levels, it drives the HDL cholesterol 
level down. It's just kind of a consequence of it is driving the HDL cholesterol down. And as a result, that's, that, that's one of the markers of, of poor metabolic health. Now, what's important is, as I said before, no one of these markers is reliable on its own because the human body is this kind of amazing complex system where there's a billion things going on at one time. Um, so you'll sometimes see like type 1 diabetes, for example, the glucose could be high, but actually they're not metabolically sick. Glucose is high because they're not making insulin. And equally, triglycerides could be really high either for genetic reasons or alcoholism or other, other, other causes. So you can't rely on just one measure, and that's the importance of getting these, kind of, you don't need loads of measures, but a range of measures to say, actually, all these things are coming together. And um, going back to actually when you see this stuff, of what happens to you, I quote another film, The Matrix. <laughs> I'm sure this must have happened to you. You know when you see the ones and zeros and suddenly everything makes sense. That's what happens when you look at these measures instead of the typical medical high glucose is bad, let's treat glucose. When you see all of these measures together as a jigsaw puzzle, suddenly it just you create that clarity of sight again and it's immediately obvious what's what's going on with somebody. Wow. I, that was one of the best explanations I've ever heard of that system. And you're right. Like if, if we are swimming in energy, energy everywhere, fat, glucose, all over the place, and everything's full, the solution becomes fairly obvious, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. One of the uh, ways I look at it, we, 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 um, Fraser, we've got hierarchies of homeostasis. So we've got, like, blood glucose has got to be kept normal. We want to try and keep our fat in our fat stores. And if the body is kind of really at peace with itself and we're not overloading it with incoming sugar, we're not overloading incoming overall fuel, we're doing some physical activity, we're getting some sleep, which is going to help the whole system stay in harmony, then actually it's like that neighbourhood where the neighbours are looking after each other. Uh, they might cut each other's grass, and if the bins haven't been taken up to the neighbour, you might be wondering why. You might be wondering by and thinking, "I got a bit of time spare today. I'll help them out." And that's kind of that metabolically healthy uh, situation. Everything's kind of just there's no pressure points, and you stress it a bit, and it and it absorbs it and deals with it and, and settles again. Whereas that poor metabolic health is like everyone's house is full of rubbish. Everyone's got rubbish all over their their garden. Um, everyone's struggling to to get the resources they need and use them properly. Traffic jams are everywhere, um, and what do you get then? Is you get you get people fighting with each other. You get kind of people uh, acting in their own interests, and that's just like the human body because each one of these systems is important. Um, and I think that's just exactly what we see. And then different people will express that in different ways depending on kind of which systems kind of strongest or weakest whatever the, the issue they're dealing with um and yeah I, I, there's a lecture i sometimes do to, to to medical students and doctors is how do you break a human <laughs> wow <laughs> everybody Perfect. gets sick within like three minutes it's like what do you do well you feed them crap feed them a load of sugar you stop them exercising you stress them out all the time you stop them sleeping it's like yeah now look look at what we're doing <laughs> is it any surprise that if we address these things people get better yeah wow 
Wow, that's amazing. That's so very well ex- explained, and I, I'm so grateful that you'd be able to go there with us. You already mentioned a paper that you did recently, and we see some familiar friends. The Unwins um, got to interview them not too long ago. Dr. Mark Kukazella is on that paper as well. We got to interview him twice. Actually, just amazing, amazing people. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the study and what you discovered? Yeah, really amazing group of people, aren't they? Um, so amazing. Both uh, David, Jen, Jen Unwin, and, and actually Jen Unwin, she, she's our director of psychology for health results, uh, which is fantastic. And and Mark, um, I absolutely love Mark. He's, he's got the, the most amount of energy oh, of yeah. anyone I've ever met. <laughs> totally. Um, he's fantastic. So that paper, so what happened really is you start to see there was lots of, there's this emergent delivery of low carbohydrate services for people with type 2 diabetes and the opportunity i saw here was like one there is this medical need people need to know like if we're delivering programs if if to reduce your carbohydrate and yet gps don't know how to change medication that's that's a barrier for the patient it's a stress for the gp it's a barrier for the patient and what's going to naturally happen there is it's going to be downplayed and brushed off and that's that's not good for anyone. So one reason for doing this paper was let's let's just spell out the what's actually extremely simple, deprescribing. How, how do you how do you deprescribe diabetes medications when somebody with type two diabetes moves to a low carbohydrate diet? And um, quite surprisingly, this this had never been published before. This this uh, information and it's not difficult, but I think clinicians are kind of finding their way forward. So we got a group of us together. The range of expertise and um, basically just put a paper together. Fortunately, the journal was very uh, British Journal of General Practice, um, which is kind of quite well circulated in the UK at least. Uh, they really uh, pressured us with keeping the word count down, which at the time of writing was quite frustrating because obviously you want to describe all the nuances of what you do with the exact amount you might change the insulins and things by. But actually, with that demand to keep the word count down, we ended up with what was actually a very, very simple description of, of what to do. And what was important for me is actually we made sure this was an open access paper because I want people with diabetes to read it. Um, I don't want them to make any changes to their medication that aren't safe. And I want them to do that in combination with their, their prescriber. But actually, let's empower people. Let's, it's, it's their life and their health. Let's make sure they know this stuff exists. And if their clinician wants some help, read this paper and you can trust it because it's in the British Journal of General Practice. If their clinician's a bit resistant, it's, it's quite tough to do that when somebody's turning up with a paper that says, this, <laughs> here's a paper published by a group of people that are doing this and it's in the British Journal of General Practice. So it's kind of one of these large scale change um, pieces to it as well um so yeah that's where that's where kind of that that, that appeared from and it was really just in, it's called a, a clinical intelligence article so it's kind of what we've been doing for years mm. um i just i love the title adapting diabetes medication for low carbohydrate management of type 2 diabetes a practical guide it it's like it makes it obvious in the title like you are going to have to get <laughs> off of your medications if you approach your diet this way like why would every diabetes patient ever that that you hope would see this paper, look at this and go, wait, what? This is, is an yeah, option? Like, hell yeah. Like, I want to do this. You're absolutely fine. I mean, that, that was one of the big reasons for writing it. I thought, we've got to move this discussion on. 
it's ridiculous. This discussion might like somebody's got high blood sugar. Let's they should eat less glucose to bring the sugar down. That seemed to be a ridiculous conversation to be having, but it was it wasn't really making as much uh, forward momentum as as you would expect from that kind of ridiculously simple thing a five year old could. Actually, on that point, uh, I must share this with you. Um, when I did one of my first um, presentations to the public in one of these town hall events, I mentioned. I was sitting on the sofa and my now oldest daughter was four at the time. And I was sitting there finishing the slides for that evening. And um, I'd just kind of done on the slides, type 2 diabetes condition of high blood glucose. And we kind of said how much glucose is in the blood. And um, then I put a question on there. If you had too much glucose in the blood, would you... A, eat more glucose, or B, eat less glucose. <laughs> and Arabella, who was four, was, was at the other end of the end of the lounge. I said, Arabella, if you had too much sugar in your blood, would you eat more sugar or less sugar? She's like, less. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> so um, I asked the question that evening to the public, and, and, and they obviously all, all got it. About six months later, I was asked to come and present on the evidence for low-carbohydrate diets to a load of... Uh, about 70 healthcare professionals, including a load of professors and dietitians in Oxford, because there was a few GPs championing the low carb thing that's creating a bit of a a bit of a um a scene. So this kind of thing got put together. And I thought, well, I'm not academic. And I thought these professors kind of henpeck each other for a for a sport. Um and actually evidence is from kind of randomized control dial studies at that point was pretty shaky. But I thought physiological evidence is pretty sound. So I asked them this exact same question. So I took them through the type 2 diabetes, high blood sugar. Normal. I asked them, what, what's normal blood sugar in grams? And none of them knew. So they didn't know the five gram, one teaspoon thing. They never stopped to think about that. And then I said to them, I said, right, you've got high blood sugar. Should you eat more sugar or less sugar? <laughs> Not one person answered. Um, and interestingly, at the end, I was expecting to get annihilated, but there was not one question at the end of the presentation, which... Um, Anyway, so there was all that was going. So I thought, actually, let's move this conversation on. So again, people will, people will argue, won't they, with the argument they have. Whereas actually, if we assume that argument's finished and we'll move on to the next step of practical impl- uh, implementation, let's, let's stop, stop arguing and just move, move the conversation on. So that was another purpose of that paper. Wow. Um, was, was, um, which is, again, it's, it's a learning I've done along the way. Don't, don't, don't create battles if you don't need them. Just move the move the move the uh system along yeah man i love that it's really funny it sounded like a trick question to them or something <laughs> yeah it's ridiculous isn't it it's, it's so, so ridiculous, ridiculous. <laughs> uh so founding um health results and working to you know scale up some of these some of these things so more people can contact them what does that um meant to you yeah it's amazing so so i mean this is important stuff isn't it? and 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 like what you're doing we know we can help people. We can know we can make an enormous difference to people's lives as individuals. We know with that we make a difference to communities' lives. Uh, we've got a social care crisis where two people are too sick and there's not enough carers and it can't be afforded. Uh, we've got healthcare services that are collapsing. Uh, we haven't got enough money for child mental health services because all the money is going on on treating chronic disease. So this problem has got to be solved and almost everyone's a winner. But the challenge is how do you do that? So for me, it um, this founding of health results is um, just to be honest, it's a dream come true. We've got some clean investment uh, where the whole focus is going on actually how much impact can we have on people, ma- making a sustainable business. But equally, it's about impact, not filling investors' pockets. 
Um, and actually, what it's enabled is, as I've mentioned right at the beginning, this problem is not a problem that should be being dealt with in a GP consulting room. Um, this problem is something that needs that, um, again, like much of the stuff you do, we've got to start with people's goals. What matters to them? What are they eating? What's their physical activity? What's their day routine? How are they sleeping? Support them on that journey. Um, I would say people need awareness, knowledge, and support. Provide that and provide that in a way that's affordable for the vast majority of people, or if not everybody. And find ways of getting education out there, knowing that that's going to help a percentage of people. And then how do we layer in the variety, the kind of pick and mix different things that people So some people want accountability and coaching. Some people will need a group to be part of. Some people want some reassurance and advice that they're definitely what they're doing and confidence of what they're doing is right. Some people will get a peculiar symptom that doesn't make sense and will need that medical piece then. But that's where the medical piece comes. So for me, it's about creating that true multidisciplinary team um, and not just thinking in the medical world, but it's like we're a group of people making a difference. Let's create the infrastructure to do that. And um, it kind of, I get the feeling it just, <laughs> it can't fail. It's, it's, it's a challenge as with all of these things of how you forge the path, isn't it? But actually the needs there, the energy's there, you get the results. It's, it's um, as long as you stay true to your mission, it's, it's, um, it's good fun. Wow. That's it's just so amazing and inspiring. And I love the positivity and just understanding that this, this change will happen. Um, I, I'm, I'm really hoping you're right, man. I'm really, really, really hoping you're right because it is, yeah. it's so important. It's so critical. It's never ending. It's never ending. It is never ending. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a, again, the way I see it, do nothing. There's always going to be bad stuff in the world. Do nothing. And you, your time on earth has allowed a bit more bad stuff to happen. Do something. And we can win the pull the tug of war a bit in the right direction. And that, that's the way I see it. It's, it's um, how do we just keep pushing in the right direction? That's amazing. Are you familiar with the starfish story? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tell it. Tell it. <laughs> yeah. Tell so, it. so for the listener, we've we've told this once or twice before, but just for the listener, so so there's a big storm washes up all the starfishes from the ocean, and they're all on the beach, and basically they're all gonna die. Like there's no way for them to get back in the ocean, and they're all gonna dry up and die. And there's a little girl on the beach who's taking the starfish one by one and throwing each one individually back into the ocean, and somebody sees her an old man sees her and and it's it's kind of like curious about what she's trying to do and he walks up to her and says little girl like look at all the starfish there's way too many starfish than you could ever save in your life like like what what do you what kind of impact do you think you can make you're not going to fix this problem and and so she looks down picks up a starfish throws it in the ocean and she says well it made a difference to that one <laughs> and i i just i i have to remind myself that constantly it's a really beautiful yeah. story and it really reminds us like, you know, we're going to keep putting this information out there. We're going to keep trying. We're going to keep learning. We're going to learn like you are learn new ways to communicate with people or communicate with different people or communicate with them differently or, or create something that hasn't been created. And I just look at what you do and it is very inspirational and, and it does make me optimistic that, you know, if we can't fix the entire world, we can fix as many people as want to be fixed and want to hear this message and want to improve their lives. So it's really, totally. it's really incredible what you're doing. And I, I really highly respect it. Yeah, totally. It's totally honest to speak to you. And again, it's, it's, um, 
this is about creating, to me, it's about creating that preventative healthcare ecosystem. So it's so people like you, and 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 how do we come together as a as a as a as a network in some way? And that's what then creates that large scale change and that momentum yep. and that energy. And, yep. and that's that's how you start chucking 10 tar- starfish back in the sea. And then the starfish start calling to their mates saying, stop lying on the sea. That's right. Kind of move in this direction. That's right. Yeah, I love that. I, I think the more we can build bridges with each other and all of our different approaches to, for the same goal, I think you're absolutely right. I think that will bring the change that needs to come. And, and yeah, again, just so grateful that you're moving the ball forward. What is one simple thing that you would like the listener to take away from this conversation and apply into their lives? Uh, uh, yeah, so much. But I would say probably say, if you haven't before, stop and just think to yourself what matters to me. Um, if, if you can write it down, write it down. If you, uh, if you, if it's a picture, a photo, um, do that because that's what, that's what drives the change. And I'll actually, I'll leave you with one other, um, the health results, one rule actually, which I've learned from years of dealing with probably over a hundred thousand patients now. And the number of people that walk around with negative self view and, and poor self judgment, probably from childhood and things. And we've got to remove judgment of self. So the health results, one rule is, what you do is not good or bad. Therefore, you are not good or bad. What you do can be helpful or unhelpful, and helpful moves you towards your goal. Mm. Um, and I think if people can stick to that and know what matters to them, then uh, yeah, with the right advice, right support, they'll um, achieve, achieve masses. Wow, what a beautiful ending to this conversation. Dr. Campbell Murdoch, where can people go to find you and your work and connect with you? Yeah, so the best place probably Twitter uh, at Campbell Murdoch and um, there will be very shortly a new health results healthresults.com website uh, being launched uh, probably within the next week or two um, which we're hoping to over the next six months or so really fill out with lots of free information one of our uh, one of our beliefs is people should have access to reliable free information um, but uh, yeah Twitter's easiest easiest place okay great we'll link to the Twitter today and as soon as that website has been launched we will link to that as well Dr. Campbell Murdoch thank you so much for everything that you do we're so grateful for your passion and your belief that we can create change and we're so grateful that you're finding ways to do it that haven't been done before and man it's just it's really inspiring it really is and we're so grateful for all of your work and for coming on to our show today we really appreciate it thank you Casey great speech and look forward to speaking again absolutely we'll stay connected And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.